And our sermon text today is uh, is Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. Give you the reading of God's word. The Lord says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, How have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With with such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept it from that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and, and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, if you were here last Sunday, you might recall uh, that in the first five verses that the, the first message that uh, God brought to his people through the prophet Malachi, and verse one of the King James puts it, I think, a little bit better. He calls the message of the word of the Lord his burden. And he called it a burden, meaning it was kind of something heavy. It was something that God had to, so, so to speak, get off his chest. It was a, a hard message to hear. But the first thing that he says to them in that passage before this one, in verse 1, is, I have loved you. He has a lot of hard things to say, but the first thing he tells them is that I have loved you. That sounds like a terrific way for a message from God to start out, doesn't it? What more could you want to hear from God than that? And I have, I have loved you. And yet, if you read even the passage we've just read this morning, if you read the rest of the book... I think you find the, the message of Malachi, a lot of it, uh, is, is the fact that while God had loved his people, they had not reciprocated that love. God had loved them and they hadn't loved him in return as they should have done. You might be familiar, some of you uh, are familiar with the old poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. It goes something like this. Uh, how do I, it starts off like this, the first verse or first line. How do I love thee, let me what? Count the ways. There you go. Everybody knows that one. Education is not dead in our country yet. Uh, How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. 
Well, you could say in some ways the passage we looked at last week, maybe I should have changed the, the title of the sermon last week, but was God briefly counting the ways in which he had loved his people. And the first thing that he, he tells them was uh, that he had elected them. He had chosen them. You know, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. He redeemed them. He preserved them. He defended them uh, from their enemies. Remember, the enemies were the Edomites, which was really their, their blood relatives. But when they were carried, Judah, when Judah was carried off into captivity by the Babylonians, what did the Edomites do? They helped. They mocked. They scorned. They they rejoiced at the calamity of their kin. And God noticed. Remember, God said, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I have hated. And then he tells them, you know, you have to read between the lines a little bit in that first passage, was they had come back. God had brought the Israelites back to rebuild. The temple had been rebuilt. But what about the Edomites? Did they get to rebuild? No, in fact, they in their pride said, we've been destroyed, but we're going to rebuild. And God says, I'm paraphrasing from the first five verses, they'll rebuild and I'll tear it down. They will be known as the wicked, the wicked territory and the people whom God hates forever, with whom God is angry forever. He tells them, I've shown a difference between you and them. I have not treated you the same as I've treated them. I have you know, been gracious to you and loved you, and yet they had not re- reciprocated that, that love. Now, what, what he does in, throughout this passage and throughout the rest of the book in some ways is he counts the ways that his people have failed to love him in return. And most of those ways, at least in this book, in some way or another, involve what they did or didn't do in worship. There's more to life and loving God than what we do on Sunday mornings. And there was more to what they did than what they did in the temple. But at the same time, God says, you know how you haven't loved me, so to speak? By what you're doing in the temple in in worship. Now that... That shouldn't surprise us, should it? You know, worship, sometimes it's easy to take worship lightly, I think, too much in our day. But what we do in worship and how we do it matters to God. It matters to God what we do here in public worship. It matters to God how we do it. And that shouldn't really surprise us at all. You know, in in the book of Matthew, chapter 22, remember Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is. Remember what his answer was? The greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then he says in the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting the Old Testament. Those two commands aren't just a New Testament thing. They're not a new thing with the gospel. Those have always been the greatest commandments. Those two loving God with all we are and loving our neighbor as ourself. Now, the command uh, to love God and love neighbor, that's a summary of the entire law. Jesus says there in Matthew 22:40 that all the law and the prophets, in other words, the whole Old Testament, hangs upon or depends upon those two commandments. So you could summarize, really, you could say, you could summarize all of God's commandments, especially the Ten Commandments, God's moral law, as loving God, and loving your neighbor. If you know your Ten Commandments, I won't ask you to recite them, but Ten Commandments, the first four, deal with your love for God, right? No other gods before me, no idolatry, don't take the name of the Lord in vain, and remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The last six have to do more with love for neighbor. Don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, and so on, and that kind of a thing. And honor your father and mother. See, I got one out of order there. 
but those those are how you love your neighbor. The commandments are all about love, loving God and, and loving neighbor. And those first four commandments, the ones dealing with love for God, if you think about them, in many ways, they deal primarily with worship. They deal with worship. Loving God has a lot to do with worship. If you love God, you will show it by one, having no other gods before him. Exodus 20, verse 3. If you love God, you'll show it by not committing idolatry. Verses 4 through 6. If you love God, you'll show it by not taking his name in vain. Exodus 20, verse 7. And lastly, if you love God, you will remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, that day of rest and worship. It's hard, it's hard to worship with the people of God on, on the Lord's day if you don't remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And so really what we're saying is worship, what we do on Sunday morning, there's a lot that goes on, there's a lot to it, a lot more you could say, but this is supposed to be about loving God and showing love for God. That's the primary thing that we are to be doing and the primary motive for what we are doing here every Sunday morning. And so... You know, as we go through our text this morning and as you go through the rest of the book, we're going to find out that the Israelites, in many ways, were taking the Lord's name in vain in how they worshipped. You could say more than that, but that's certainly what they were doing. You know, I, I, I won't quote it this morning, but I'll leave, I'll leave this to you for your own homework, so to speak. You know, uh, this afternoon sometime, if you have a copy of the Shorter Catechism, if you don't, we'll give you one. But uh, look up questions 54 and 55. It's about the third, the third commandment, about taking the Lord's name in vain. And, it, it, you know, the way the Shorter Catechism works is it says what's forbidden and what's required. It kind of breaks down each commandment with the positive and the negative. Uh, and it says about what's, what's forbidden and required is that we are not to uh, take the Lord's name in vain by, this, by, by profaning, I think is the word it uses, anything by which he makes his name known. And it mentions specifically his ordinances, worship, the preaching of the word, public prayer, the Lord's Supper, baptism. These are things by which God makes his name known. And so to misuse them or to profane them is a form of taking God's name in vain. I didn't count it. I should have counted it writing the sermon. But I don't know if you noticed how often in this little short text the phrase name, the word God's name specifically comes up. It's all through the text. It's the his name is to be great among the nations, his name, all, all the thing, all the things he says have to do with the glory of his name. God God is concerned about his name, and they had they had despised his name, is what he, he tells them. So the Israelites, they were, you know, they, they were taking his name in the manner in which they worshipped in the newly rebuilt temple. You know, they were going through the motions. In some cases, they were going through the right motions. In some cases, they weren't. Uh, but uh, what they were doing was they were, you know, they were bringing offerings. They were bringing sacrifices. But what did they do with those offerings and sacrifices? Uh, the way they brought them and what they brought in them was displeasing to God and it was a form of despising his name. But they had no idea. The Israelites' hearts were hardened, many of them. They thought that everything was just fine on their end. If you had asked them how, how things were going, they wouldn't have called it church, but how are things going at church? They would have said, oh, fine. Oh, I brought a sacrifice last, last Sabbath. 
yeah, everything's great. And yet it wasn't. And really what, what I think we'll find as we go through our, this book, they thought they were doing fine and that God wasn't keeping up his end of the bargain. They were doing what they were supposed to do, going through the motions, bringing their offerings, and God was not prospering them. That's the way that they, no doubt, saw it. Both priests and people alike saw it that way, and yet that certainly was not the way that God saw it, and so God unloads this burden to them to tell them. So the first thing we see in our text is despising the name of the Lord. Despising the name of the Lord. The Lord addresses the priests first, and then the people kind of indirectly through them and he accuses them and you know God always judges justly if God says this is what you're doing that's what you're doing right you know we, we can often get that wrong I've gotten that wrong you've gotten that wrong we, we misread each other's motives on a regular basis somebody does something you don't like and instead of saying you know maybe they didn't realize what they were doing you know we kind of go on the attack at least in, in our hearts and go oh they ah, that person's always doing this they're always being this way towards me and they might have no idea but when God says you've despised my name you've despised his name and that's what God summarizes the problem at look at verse 6 he says a son honors his father and a servant his master if then I am a father where is my honor and if I am a master where is my fear says the Lord of hosts to you O priests who despise my name there it is they despised the name of God, the priests did in how they led worship in the temple. And then he says, but you say, here's the, the back and forth we're going to see all through the book. God says this, and they talk back. But you say, how have we despised your name? They, they don't see it at all. They think God is crazy. They think he's accusing them of something they haven't done. And So God starts off by stating a, a, a truism of sorts, doesn't he? He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. You know, in other words, this is something they would all nod their heads at. He's not saying every son is perfect, right? But he's saying, by and large, children, and specifically sons, they know they're supposed to honor their parents. And they tend to honor their, their father. And then he says, servants, you know, typically most servants, at least in that day, would fear and honor their masters as well. Um, a good son honors his father, and this is something that was true of most sons, not just exceptional ones. And a servant may or may not love his master, and the word master there, it's literally the word that we would normally translate lord. Um, he, a servant doesn't necessarily love a, a master like a son would, uh, but he would certainly honor and fear his master. He would respect the power and authority of his master over him, and submit to him in obedience. But, but look what God says here. If then I am a father. Is God a father? Yes, if you're a believer, God is your heavenly father. Through, through faith in Christ. Is, if I then am a father, where is my honor? You honor your earthly fathers. What about me? He's kind of saying. You're not honoring me. I'm more of a father to you than your earthly father is. And if I am a master. And again, it's literally Lord or Adonai. Where is my fear? The Israelites were worshiping. They were going to the temple. They were offering sacrifices. Uh, they weren't skipping church, so to speak. Uh, but despite the fact that they went through those motions of worshiping God, what is, what is God saying? You're, it's like he's saying, you're going to the temple. You're offering prayers. You're offering sacrifices. But you are not honoring me. You're not 
fearing me as you should. That should be very instructive for us and, and for the church in every age. It is possible, and it happens, it's possible to worship God, at least outwardly, and yet fail to honor him or fear him as we should at all. I, I dare say it happens on a regular basis all over, all over the world where churches meet. Go through motions, we, we show up, we sing, we pray, we do what we do, but we're not truly honoring God or fearing him the way that we should. You know, if we could go back in time, go back in the Wayback Machine, remember that cartoon if you're old enough to remember Mr. Peabody and whatever, you go in the Wayback Machine and, and we could go back there and see the temple and see what was going on, chances are we wouldn't have really noticed anything was out of place. We would have been probably shocked at the, the blood and the, you know, the, the killing of animals and whatnot. We, well, we don't do that in church, but we'd see them going through their motions. We'd think, oh, this is how it was done. Okay, this is interesting. We wouldn't have seen anything uh, out, of, out of the way or awry. Uh, but God tells them uh, that he wished, so to speak, anyways. God basically says, you're worshiping. I wish there was somebody here who had the good sense to close the doors. Imagine God saying that to a church. And this, you know, this isn't really just an Old Testament thing either, which we'll see a little bit later on in the sermon this morning, Lord willing. Remember the book of Revelation? It's been a while since we finished that book. The seven letters to the seven churches. What did Jesus threaten a number of times to some of these churches? I'm going to remove your lampstand. What does that mean? The doors are probably not going to be closed, but they're no longer going to be a church. They'd be a church in name only because Jesus isn't going to be there anymore. There's no more light. Uh, the light comes from him, not from them. Their light was going to be put out because of their unfaithfulness. That is what he threatens. And so God basically says, you know, I let you rebuild this temple, I'm paraphrasing. You're having these offerings, but I wish somebody would just close the doors. would be better off if the doors were closed, looking at verse 10. Now, how did God sum up the problem that was going on to the priests? If, you know, how did God sum up what the, what the main issue was here, he does give them more details, but in verse 6, he says they had despised his name. Do you think the priests and the people offering their sacrifices thought that's what they were doing? If you had asked them, as God kind of does here, right, are you despising God's name? They would have probably looked at you like they had two heads. They would have said, of course not. We're at the temple. We're offering our sacrifices. But that's what God sums it up as. In fact, they say, how have we despised your name? And so, you know, I think one of the many lessons for us to learn as we go through the book of Malachi is to search our hearts. Search our hearts uh, about, about, you know, is, that, is it possible to come to church and to worship and to do, do it in such a way as to despise God's name? And to know it's, it is possible to worship in such a way that it would be better if the doors were to, re, were to remain closed because God's name is being despised rather than honored in worship. As we worship as a church, you know, it's easy for us, easy for me to think, oh, that's out there. You know, and I, I, sometimes I probably sound like that. Oh, those bad, out there, out there. We should, we should be looking at our own hearts. How are we worshiping? Are we honoring and fearing God in what we do in worship? You know, uh, another lesson for us to learn here and one that we probably need to be reminded of more than we might think in this age of so-called, people have called it worshiptainment, you know, the entertainment model of worship. Uh, the primary, who is the primary audience and recipient 
of worship when we gather. God. God is the primary audience, so to speak. He is the primary recipient of our worship. It's God himself. And so worship, whatever we do here in, in church and, and on the Lord's Day, is to be about God and is to be for God. It's about him and it's for him. It's not about us. It's not for us. I hope that when you come here every Sunday, you know, I know it's different every Sunday, it seems like. You never know what you're going to get. Um, but I hope that you are blessed by coming here from week to week. I, I hope that you receive a blessing that you are, are, are able to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and that you are fed on the word of God, all these things. And yet, that's not the primary thing, is it? It should be, what do we give to God? I think in, in many cases, we have the whole thing turned on its head. What, what are we getting? We should get a lot, but we get by giving, not the, not the other way around. And so that being the case, I mean, when you think about public worship in the church, the primary question that we should be asking ourselves regarding worship is not whether we ourselves like it or are pleased by it, but whether or not God is pleased with it. That must be the, the first question every time. When you think about worship and everything we do as a church, is this pleasing to God? Is what we are doing well-pleasing in his sight? Or do we just say, I don't like this, this, and this. I prefer such and such. Is that how we think? Or do we think of God and what God would have us to do? You know, Much of what goes on in Christian worship today, I think, would simply cease to be if, it were, if we were to hold to that standard which I think is the biblical standard. God, God has not left us in the dark as his people as far as what we should do in worship and how we should do it. He tells us in many ways in his word what is pleasing and acceptable in his sight. Now, now how had they despised the name of the Lord God tells them? That's what the priests ask him in verse 6. How? How have we despised your name, God? And what does God tell them? He says they had despised his name. And this is the second point. By despising the table of the Lord. Look at verses at the end of verse 6 through verse 9. God says, But you say, How have we despised your name? And he says, By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, Here's the refrain again. God tells them something and they talk back. But you say, How have we polluted you? And he says, By saying that the Lord's table may be what? Despised. So they've despised God's name. And they despise God's table. And he says, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? So what, what happened is God says they had offered polluted food. It's Literally, it's bread. The word is bread. It wasn't bread they were giving uh, upon the altar. Now notice, notice whose altar it is and whose table it is. God doesn't say, does God, does, he could have just said, you've offered polluted food on the table. You've offered polluted food on the altar. He says, you've offered polluted food on my altar and my table. The temple is God's house. Everything in it is God's house. And you know, we often say when you have kids and they go to a friend's house, what do you tell them? Their house, their rules. My house, my rules. Well, God's house, God's rules. And they weren't following God's rules. It was God's table, God's temple, God's 
uh, altar, it, it wasn't theirs to do with whatever they pleased. And yet that's exactly what they were doing. It's kind of scary to think how hard our hearts can be and how hard their hearts must have been to have been in captivity for all those decades and then for God to graciously bring them back into the land, allow them and enable them to rebuild the temple, to reinstitute the sacrifices, and how quickly within, I don't know how many years it was when Malachi wrote this, but how quickly it degenerated right back into formalism and hypocrisy and really reviling God's, God's name. Um, you know, the church, likewise, is not ours to do with however we please. And that goes for pastors and elders as well. It, the church is not ours. We, we call it our church. But it's not whose church is it? It's God's church. God does with it and can do with it whatever he please. Now, how had they offered polluted food and sacrifice? Look at verse 8. He says, when you offer blind animals and sacrifice... And look what he calls it. Is that not what? Evil. And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? He doesn't say, hey, it's a little off. Hey, it's not quite what I wanted you to do. You know, you did okay, but could be better. He calls it evil. Like, you should not have done this. It was a sin. Like, not only did they not get favor in God's sight, they brought themselves guilt in God's sight by what they offered. Now, did the priests and the people that brought those offerings not know full well that this would be unacceptable? No, they knew. They knew full well, or at least they should have known. Back in Leviticus chapter 22, I know it's a book we don't often read, but Leviticus 22, verses 21 to 22, God gives instructions on the sacrifices. And here's what he says. Leviticus chapter 22. And when anyone offers a sacrifice or peace offerings, to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted it must be perfect there shall be no blemish in it animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the table I know that sounds kind of too, TMI right too much information too graphic but he says, here's what you don't do. If you're going to make me a free will offering that no one's twisting your arm behind your back to give, you don't have to give one. But if you make a vow to God and involve giving an offering and a sacrifice, or if you give a free will offering to God on your own to praise God for his goodness to you, here's what you don't do. You don't give me the ones that are messed up. You don't give me the lame animals, the sick animals, ones that have been attacked, ones that are, you know, are, are cut and all these things. That's not how this works. You, you bring one that's perfect, that's not harmed or, or deformed in any way. Now think about what's being pictured here. The worshiper, the Israelite back then, is offering to God one of his animals as a sacrifice to God. But what's he, what's he not supposed to do? He's not supposed to offer to God the worst of what he has. He's not supposed to offer to God the deformed or the harmed uh, or the unclean in, in some way. He wasn't to offer to God the worst of his flocks or herds. He was to offer God his best. That, that's, that's a costly thing to do. You know, when you think of, I'm not an expert on, on the agrarian economy of Israel back in the day, but, you know, what was your wealth in many cases measured by? The sizes of your flocks and your herds, the numbers of animals that you had. In fact, when you read through your Old Testament, you know, sometimes read through it, read through the patriarchs 
And it tells you how great their flocks and herds were. People like Abraham and Job and Isaac and all these people, their wealth, so-called, was measured by the size of their, their property. And mo- most of that was their animals. It'd be like somebody having a fleet of cars. You know, it's like, that person has money. Well, you don't give them your beat-up jalopy, your beater. You give God the good car, so to speak. Not that God needs a car, but, you know, you give God the clean animal, the good animal, the one that's not, that's not deformed. And so what lessons should we get from that? There's a number of them, but one is we were to offer God our very best. When you make an offering to God, whether it be in any form, not even talking about money and things, but everything, we were to offer God, you know, one of the reasons that, you know, it's called the first fruits. We give God off the top, not the dregs at the end when we're already broke. You know, uh, but anything you give to God is to be your very, your very best. Now we don't do that to earn something. We don't merit anything from God by doing that. We don't merit His forgiveness. We don't even merit His blessings, although God is very often pleased to bless us for our imperfect obedience. Uh, we offer our best to God. Why? Because He has shown such great mercy and love and grace towards us in His Son. God has given us his best in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins. And so those of us who trust in Christ should give God out of gratitude our very best back to him. Now notice that twice God tells the priest that to offer such a polluted or unclean sacrifice was evil. It wasn't a minor infraction. Now do you think they thought such sacrifices would would result in God's approval and blessing? They probably did, but should they have? No. They should have known. You know, you have to think, you have to wonder deep down in their hearts. They knew that this wasn't the right thing to do, and yet they did it. They did it anyway. Now, notice that God tells them that, that they would never dare give such a gift to their own governor. Yeah, in verses 8 to 9, God gives them kind of an argument from the lesser to the greater, so to speak. He's like, you're, I'm paraphrasing, but he's saying kind of, you're giving me. God, your God, the one who chose you, redeemed you, protects you, sustains you, in my house, deformed animals. You wouldn't even do that to your governor. You wouldn't dare, he's kind of saying. You wouldn't take this broken leg, you know, maybe I saw the other day an animal, a dog that had three legs. It came running out at our dog, Jake, and I was like, whoa. But, you know, it would be like taking a three-legged sheep. You know, to, to the to the temple, you wouldn't take a three-legged sheep or one that was deformed to your governor. Here, I brought you a gift. What would he do? He wouldn't accept it. God says he certainly wouldn't show you favor. Oh, what do you want? And if you ever did a favor, you call me. You let me know. God says no. He would he would never do such a thing. He wouldn't accept it from their hands or show them favor. But they thought God should. That's what was happening. That's the level of hardness of heart that was going on. Now, now there's a, a more important reason even than that why the sacrifices that we bring and they brought to the temple had to be done with animals that were unblemished and without defect. It's not just about offering God their best, although that I think is part of it, but it's because those sacrifices were meant to be a shadow or type of God giving his best for our salvation and sending forth his son. Remember, remember what John the Baptist called Jesus when he first saw him? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? That was a hint, as the kids say. That was a hint. That Jesus was supposed to be the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prop, uh, sacrifices. In 1 Peter 1, 18-19, the Apostle Peter tells us 
uh, that we are to be holy as God is holy. Why? Because we know that we were ransomed or redeemed from our old way of life. And how was that? He says, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with, here it is, the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see the point? Why did you have to bring a lamb or a a goat or a bull that had no spot or defect? Because that lamb and goat and bull was supposed to point forward to Christ, who was God's only begotten Son and was without spot or defect. That's the reason. It's a picture of Christ. It's a picture, a foreshadowing of the gospel of our salvation. And so God is saying, you can't do that. You can't, when you bring an unclean sacrifice, a, a polluted sacrifice, you're basically despising Christ who was to come. You're, you're showing dishonor to the name of Jesus Christ even in doing that and making light of the gospel. Uh, Jesus was the fulfillment in his death for our sins of all those sacrifices from the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 9 says something similar. Hebrews 9, 11 to 14 says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then uh, through the greater and more perfect tent, the tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he, Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Here it is. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God it's a repeated refrain in the New Testament for a reason that Jesus offered himself without spot or blemish for our salvation And he did that to purify our conscience from dead works that we might serve the living God. That's the point. And so those sacrifices are all about Christ. And so to mess them up and to mess with them and do as we please with them, as they did back in Malachi's day, was to show disrespect to Christ and the gospel. And so for the priests, the ones in charge of the temple, to offer blemished or lame animals back then was an affront to Christ himself. It was to despise the very picture of the gospel of our salvation that was to be found in that administration of the covenant of grace. That's why it mattered so much. It's why God wasn't just being a stickler. God instituted those sacrifices for a reason as a picture of the gospel. Now there are examples of despising the table of the Lord in the New Testament as well. You remember Paul's words to the church in the city of Corinth about their abuses of the Lord's table in First Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 22. This is what Paul writes. And see if you hear something similar to what you're hearing in the book of Malachi. Paul writes to this church, imagine hearing this from your pastor who had left you know, for, for some reason for a missions trip. He says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Paul, what do you really mean, Paul? Right? It's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, and when you gather on Sundays, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part 
For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, here it is again, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. They were taking the Lord's Supper. That's what they thought they were doing. They had the bread, they had the wine. But what does Paul say? He's like, I know you think you're doing the Lord's Supper. You're not. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Why? For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Imagine that church picnic. No, what do you and you, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you, or here's the word. I didn't even notice it until just now. Or do you despise the church of God? Different language, same word. Do you despise the church of God and, and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And in fact, later on in the same passage, he says, because of this, some of you have gotten sick and weak and have died. Like, in other words, God judged the church in Corinth because of their abuse of the Lord's table. I should have saved this for the first Sunday of the month, huh? I mean, that's, that's what... And Paul tells them, hey, you're taking the Lord's Supper, but you're not. That, that's how bad it was in what they were doing and how they were doing it. It wasn't just an Old Testament thing. It was a New Testament thing at times as well. Think about that. Paul is telling them that when they gathered on the Lord's Day for worship, it was not for the better, but for the worse. He's saying it would have been better if you just hadn't had church that day. That's an amazing thing. A sad thing for Paul, who planted that church in Corinth, to have to say to his people, Paul didn't pull any punches. He wanted, you know, he wanted them to change their ways. More than that, in verse 20, he tells them that whatever it was they were doing, it wasn't actually the Lord's Supper that they were eating, no matter what they thought it was that they were doing. Now, there are surely churches, probably more, than, more of them than we might like to imagine, which would be much better off not meeting at all. Think about that. You know, if, you know, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we can't say, well, that was an Old Testament thing or that was a first century thing. Like The same stuff happens the same as it ever has. Their worship in many places is not really worship at all, and God's name is despised by not treating him as holy in the worship of God in his house. By the grace and mercy of God, may he revive us and preserve us from such a sad state. May we continually examine ourselves, our hearts, and our worship, and may God reform us you know, one of the, the slogans of the Protestant Reformation that has come out of that uh, was reformed, but always reforming. That should be our goal here. We should not be content to say, well, we're reformed. We're not like church B down the street. No, we should be always seeking to do God's will and worship in a way that's pleasing in his sight. And if we see anything that we're doing that we shouldn't do, or we see anything that we're doing that we should do in a different way to please God, then that's what we should always seek to do. One last thing. After all that difficult uh, things to hear that we have heard, um, for all the difficult words that, that, that God has said here through Malachi, uh, even in our text and throughout this book, there's much good news sprinkled throughout. It's one of the, 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 the amazing things of God's word. You know, when you read the book of Isaiah, read the first chapter of Isaiah. It's a miracle you get to chapter 2. I mean, God, God is just letting them have it. He's saying, you know, when you lift your hands in prayer, I'm going to hide my eyes. You know, he wants nothing. He calls them, they're coming to his house, trampling his courts. Like, you're trespassing. Like, you might as well be unclean Gentiles, worse, you know, offering pigs and things. Like, you're, you're doing things you shouldn't be doing in his house. 
Um, and yet, where do you see some of the most beautiful Old Testament pictures of the gospel of Christ and, and prophecies of his coming than, I, than Isaiah, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9? All through the book, you see things like that. Well, the gospel is also throughout the book of Malachi, and it shows through in our text as well. Malachi prophesies about the coming of John the Baptist, about the coming of Christ the Redeemer, and in our text, which we're going to deal with a little bit more fully in a couple Sundays, we haven't gotten through everything this morning, uh, the Lord foretells here about the, the spread of the gospel throughout the world in the New Testament age. You know, no sooner does he tell him that in verse 10 he wishes somebody would close the doors uh, of the temple, then he goes on to say in verse 11, he says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name, there's his name again, my name will be great where? Among the nations. My, from the rise, all day, every day, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. That word could be translated the Gentiles, the goyim, the, the nations, the, 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 the people that aren't Jewish. He's saying, everywhere else in the world, my name is going to be known as great. He says, and in every place. Think about that. You know, Jesus at the woman at the well. Remember that? He said, you know, the day is coming when you're not going to worship here or just in this spot, but but worshipers are going to worship God in spirit and in truth. He says, In every place incense will be offered in my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. He says it twice. And again, at the end of the chapter, he talks about uh, the fear of his name among the nations as well. The name of the Lord was going to be great among the nations. He says it twice. The greatness of God's name is primary throughout our text. That's the concern in Malachi chapter 1. It's the greatness and glory of God's name. Uh, and, and that it was not going to be limited to Israel. It was going to be something that would go throughout all the earth. The temple was never an end in and of itself. It was never meant to be you know, God kept in one spot and his glory and his worship kept in one small spot on the globe. His glory was to go out to all the nations. And with the coming of Christ and his resurrection, every place, incense, God says, will be offered in his name. And a pure offering that would be what? Acceptable to God. A pure offering. That's what happens every Lord's Day when the church gathers all over the world, worshiping God in Christ's name as he instructs us in his word. That his name is known to be great in every nation and in every place incense is going to be offered now we don't we don't burn incense here but what does revelation talk about the incense being in the temple the prayers of the saints it's all those things were typifying something else and so we we offer sacrifices to god the sacrifices of praise the sacrifices of our of our lives as a living sacrifice romans 12 says all these things are ways of worshiping and offering to God, So that, that should be the goal of everything we do as a church and especially everything we do on Sunday mornings in worship, that God's name would be hallowed and glorified and known as great because of everything that God has done in sending his son Jesus Christ to save us by his grace. May his name be magnified in and by us from the rising of the sun to its setting and even among all the nations as we support the work of missions throughout the world. Amen.